Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I'm calling in from the sunny shores of Cannes. Over the course of the 2022 festival, as news of standing ovations and walkouts, raves and pans, spit takes and hot takes flood the feed, the Film Comment crew will be reporting on all the cinematic goings on at the Crossette with dispatches, interviews and podcasts. So make sure to subscribe to both the Film Comment letter and podcast and keep tuning in every day for more. We're recording our first on the ground can podcast. I just arrived here an hour ago, but I'm here with two critics and film comment contributors who are already weather-worn and battered and beaten down by yeah, a, a day You're and looking a... great, Debbie. Cheers, thanks. <laughs> by a day and a half of can. No, you guys look great, but I feel I feel the the can weariness, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm surely... we. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Can we? Uh, I love that. There we go. That's the, that's the headline of today's <laughs> podcast, Conway. Podcast number one, Conway. So we have with us today, uh, Jessica Kiang. Um, I'm covering for Variety from here. And Jessica was just on our preview as well. And, and Jordan Crump, covering Cannes for Art Forum. And we already got a little bit from Jessica about, you know, her Cannes experiences over the years. And what about you, Jordan? Like, what year is it for you? And... This is my 10th year, um, and it's been more or less the same until the last two, I guess. Uh, but yeah, this year's back to normal as far as the crowds, but uh, the ticketing system, I guess, is the new kind of wrinkle that was implemented last year and has carried over to this year, but still doesn't work pro- properly. So uh, yeah, it's been an ordeal, but they're working on it, apparently. So I do have a question about that. So mm-hmm. pre-online ticketing system, did people just line up? You just yeah. li- lined yeah. up for the movie. There was yeah. no so booking a ticket. Ostensibly, this should be way better. If you book your ticket, you show up right when right. the movie starts and you yeah. get your assigned seat. But, you know, it's hard to get tickets and people, there's still big lines. And uh, Yeah, I think now that the time that you save, that you used to spend in queues, you now spend refreshing your Ugh. browser yeah. trying to get at the At 7 a.m. To, at 7 a.m. Yeah, yeah. Trying to get the thing to book. So actually, I'm not sure it does represent any saving on time this time. Yeah. And also the other thing that technically uh, an online booking system should do is kind of mitigate some of the ridiculous hierarchy stuff that goes on with badges, but they've actually managed to build that into the ticketing <laughs> yeah, system. That's too. my favorite thing. Yeah. It's like a metaphor for the world, actually, you know? It Tech is. is not saving us. No, 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 no. It's just finding new ways to screw us. Yeah. Well, so like I said, I just got here. So full disclosure, I have barely seen any unembargoed movies. So I that's why I have these two pros here. So I thought we would start with the opening night film, which I know Jordan is not thrilled to talk about, but he is the only one of us who actually saw the opening night film. Feels proper to start with that one. So what was the first film of Cannes 2022 like? And what was it? The opening night film this year was Corpé, uh, First Cut. By, Coupé. Uh, Coupé. Right? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Coupé. Yeah. I don't even know the name of the film. First <laughs> Cut is the, uh, the American title. It's by uh, Michelle Hazanavisius, the director of the artist, among other films. Um, this is, I don't know, a, more of a, obviously a genre effort for him. It's a zombie film, a remake of a Japanese film called One Cut of the Dead. This film works, I guess, as an opening night movie. It's not something for me, exactly. It's kind of a meta-cinematic zombie film where the cast and crew go out to film a zombie movie and then they 
really get infected and are become zombies. Uh, so it's just kind of film within a film thing. So yeah, it's diverting enough. It wasn't really for me. And it sort of feels kind of like 10 years past when it would have been like zeitgeisty to do that now. Like, mm. Even like the Jim Jarmusch zombie movie felt like kind of out of date, even though I think that those meta aspects of that film worked a little better. Mm-hmm. This one kind of just feels a little tired and out of date. But uh, yeah, I guess it's fine for an opener. I mean, can it's hit or miss on opener. Sometimes I have like a some auteur title, like last year I met, mm-hmm. or uh, I don't know, Moon Knight's Kingdom, I think opened one year. So sometimes it's those kind of films, other times it's like Hollywood type films. So yeah, this one kind of splits the difference and they like to get French films in there, I think as much as uh, possible, so. Yeah, I think it also sort of falls between two stools though as well, because it is. I mean, my, my review of this film, which I haven't seen, is that I didn't even bother going to see it, which is very unusual. I would normally I would normally make the effort to go and see the opening night film in Cannes just because I'm here in Cannes, and it's a thing, and it's an event. And this already didn't really feel like that yeah. kind of an event. Even And again, had it been Elvis, which also would have been an obvious choice yeah. because, you know, um, Great Gatsby opened uh, for, right. and not a film I liked at all, but actually it was just hilarious fun to watch that. And, and it did feel like a big event opening and this just didn't really have that feel. So I felt quite okay missing it. So that's your review of Coupe that you <laughs> that didn't bother yes, to see exactly. it. But what was, <laughs> what was your first film of Cannes 2022? Um, um, I should say to listeners that, Critics, we often watch a lot of movies like well even before the festival, but because of embargoes, we it's you know it's kind of like movies. They don't shoot them in order, mm-hmm. but then we see them in narrative order. It's kind of like that. Yeah, we pretend, a nice analogy, right? Yeah. We pretend like this is it's the first. I'm sure that wasn't the first film you saw, Jordan. No, from Cannes. I saw films before I got here. Yeah. Few, but yeah, that was the first one that I saw in a theater here. In uh, On the Crosset. Yes. Yeah. How about you, Jessica? Well, the first one I saw, I mean, I, I again, I, I was in Paris and London before this, and they do lots of pre-screenings in both of those cities, so I saw quite a few films before. Um, and then when I got here, actually, my first film on the closet was a super secret screening of something like that is still under embargo, but I can't talk about. So, um, yes, I mean, it, it really is strange like that. Yeah, kind of you are part of the critics Illuminati. Uh, apparently yeah. so. Apparently so. Yes, yes. Uh, tremble before my power. <laughs> Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I can't talk about that one. So the first one, official uh, press screening that I went to was Tchaikovsky's Wife, which mm. is the Kirill Serebrennikov film. So it's a period piece, and Kirill Serebrennikov obviously is, there was always going to be some some sort of like meta interest going on around this because he is a Russian filmmaker and there was a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not Russian filmmakers should be represented at all. Serebrennikov is very famously a dissident, was basically uh, uh, under house arrest from the regime and has now, you know, so so of all of the Russian filmmakers, you would imagine that, that you know, he would be the one who would sort of get the license to be able to, to show mm-hmm. in Cannes. And yet there still was quite some complaint. There's been some complaint, I think, from the Odessa Film Festival as well, saying that he shouldn't, like, there should be an absolute blanket moratorium on anybody from Russia. So this is a, it's weird because this has absolutely nothing to do with the film. (laughs) So, uh, and the film itself is a period piece um, about the wife of uh, Pyotr Tchaikovsky, Mm. the composer. um, And I hated it. (laughs) <laughs> so, really? Yes, oh I my. really hated it. I'm I was so surprised disappointed. by how much I hated it. Because yeah. I really, I liked his previous film, uh, yeah. Patras Blue, quite a lot. I, I really enjoyed the diseasiness of that. Um, and uh, this one, I really, I, I, it really actually actively annoyed me. Um, I don't really know why, why you would make a film in which you're, we're basically sort of coached to despise the lead character, Tchaikovsky's wife. 
She is just one of the most abject and pathetic creatures throughout the entire thing. The, the whole the plot basically revolves around her falling absolutely weirdly uh, for no reason in love with Tchaikovsky um, and essentially being the whatever the 18th century equivalent of a stalker is. Um, and um, and then oh, actually, she is the stalker. Here. Yeah, okay, and, and yeah. then and persuading him to to marry her. And basically, it's very obvious from the very beginning, if you're watching this, that he is gay mm. and she is kind of a, a, in a beard situation. Um, but she does not realize this at all and basically goes insane um, and uh, won't won't divorce him. And won't, and even though he's, you know, he, he basically despises her and you very quickly come to despise her as well. Or I certainly did. Um, and I, I really find it very uncomfortable watching a film where, in which you're. It's supposedly from her point of view, and yet her point of view, that this is just this one note the entire time. She is just this abject, dog-like, devoted thing. And then every now and then there's these weird sort of orgy bits that are just come in and are stuck in there for no reason whatsoever. And then every now and then again, he does a sort of a Petrov's fluey thing where he'll do a slightly surreal moment. Um, the ending is is quite surreal. And the, the ending actually I thought was really interesting only because there's another film I've seen which is under embargo at the moment. but. If we get a third film where there's a woman in a corset dancing to anachronistic music uh, in an empty room, then we definitely have a trend because there's oh, how actually specific. the second time okay. I saw this. <laughs> yes, um, and the other one where it happens is much better, in my opinion. Okay, anyway, so well, I think you've we will too, reveal though, the the other title yes. in a future podcast. Yes. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. So... Jordan, you also saw Tchaikovsky's wife, and you have thoughts. I have also seen this movie, and I also don't like it, which is kind of unfortunate, I guess, because I have some nice things to say about uh, his other films. Uh, in fact, I talked to him about Petros Flu last year for you guys. Um, so this one, yeah, it's much... I said the first half is in a totally different style than anything I've seen him do, which in some sense is okay, because I think he kind of takes his style sometimes maybe too far and Petros flew like it's kind of a very uneven movie but like the best parts are really great so this is like for the first hour and a half or whatever it's a two and a half hour movie is like kind of a really bland uh period piece melodrama and then it kind of switches once uh Tchaikovsky's wife uh they get divorced finally and she starts to go mad and crazy and all these kind of more hallucinogenic sequences start to happen which is more reminiscent of Petros flew but yeah it didn't really meld together for me and it was just like not involving his drama unfortunately and I thought the actress was good for what it was but it's just like I'm curious what the point of making this movie was because not very other than it having like homosexual themes it's not very uh provocative I mean maybe for Russian officials and that's about it but otherwise in the context of can like we'll see I'm sure much more interesting or subversive uh takes on this kind of material and other films um so yeah, it's a little bit of a letdown and just like kind of a slog for two and a half hours. And yeah, I don't know. He's very prolific. He's already working on another film. So I'm sure maybe this is just a, I don't know, stopgap or something. But yeah, um, yeah, that's basically all I got on this one. <laughs> um, did you like anything you saw? <laughs>
I have liked one film I saw. Uh, the new film by Pietro Marcello is called uh, Scarlet. It is the opening night of uh, the Kanzen, director's fortnight. This is uh, Marcello's, I guess, second like fully narrative film after Martin Eden, which I'm sure many listeners are uh, familiar with. Uh, this film kind of, though, harkens back to his slightly earlier films that were more hybrid-based and had do- more documentary elements in it. This one is an adaptation of a book, and it tells kind of a fabulistic story of a world world war one soldier who comes back to his village in uh this is actually marcello's first film in french as well so that he comes back to a village in france where his wife has died while he's been away and when he comes back he has a newborn baby that he i guess is aware of but has never met and the film kind of follows him at the beginning for a while as the baby is obviously young and then as she grows up she kind of takes center stage as the main character of the film and uh if she kind of gets into these uh, situations where she meets kind of magical type fairy tale type creature. She meets like a witch who tells her that she's going to be this uh, successful, uh, I don't know, she wants to be a singer. And so um, anyway, so it, it mixes archival imagery, which is what Marcello is kind of known for with like really textured 16 millimeter uh, cinematography. And it really blends them like more beautifully than most of his films even have before. And yeah, it just has this very like magical quality. It's much more like Martin Eden is kind of a severe and melodramatic film. This is much more lyrical and low key, and maybe probably could come off as more modest. But and if that, I mean, that's probably the case. But it's really uh, kind of touching, and it, it deals with kind of the town not being fully accepting of their family. You you find out why the family doesn't like the deceased wife, and so it's kind of the um, the dad and the daughter trying to uh, kind of make their way within this village who have kind of considered them outcasts. Um, so yeah, it's a really beautiful movie that uh, I think, uh, yeah, just kind of moved me and touched me by the end. But I know Jessica's hot too, so I don't know if you have any different thoughts than I do. But <laughs> Yes, I mean, I, I, I saw this uh, yesterday um, and uh, I think I, my, my expectations were so high because I was one of the many people who went completely bonkers for Martin Eden. I really loved it so much. And so, from judging against Martin Eden for me, um, this felt like a little bit of a, a step down. But that said, for the first while, like for, certainly for the first hour or so of this movie, I really loved it. I was actually really, really enjoying it. And I, exactly what Jordan is saying, this is something really appropriate about the use of 16 mil, this beautifully textured um, photography that then blends so seamlessly with these colorized archival footage um, of soldiers coming back from the war and things like that. And and um, even like department stores and stuff, it, just where he's found that archival footage is very interesting and where he places it is very interesting and well done and I actually was really moved by the f- story of the father and the, and the, when it's a father and ch- daughter like father and child daughter story I was really there with it I, especially the actor who plays the father is just so fascinating to look at and he's a really interesting presence um, and there's the, what Jordan was referring to there's this moment where they where he does something which is, which results in him him and the family becoming even more outcast than they already are um him and his daughter really um he's also he's a very he's a very um 
uh, uh, a skilled uh, woodworker. So he, he there's a sort of an ongoing thing about working with your hands, which also then sort of knits back into 16 mil, having that lovely grainy texture and feeling so sort of artisanal and handmade. Um, but yes, this thing that he does um, also, I, I was really interested in that because I think, and I might be misremembering this, but I think it's, isn't there a thing in French law, bystander law, or there used to be or something or other that you, if you, if somebody is in severe trouble or whatever it is, it's actually a criminal act to not help them. That The fact that, that, ha- that that's the reason that he becomes a further outcast was really interesting to me. And I was like, oh, this, so there is kind of a political aspect to this here as well. And um, however, then the latter half of the film, when when the girl grows up, and actually when my personal bugbear Louis Garel shows up, um, uh, bugbear. Bug, I mean, he's just he's just Louis Garel every time, and like just I can't I can't ever see him as anybody. But oh, oh here's Louis Garel turned up to bring some brood to the thing, um, and he brings some brood, and he's obviously like you know the the, the sort of the. The, he's going to be the fly in the ointment or he's certainly going to be, you know, an agent of change in this rustic life that she has been living. And um, and it's so when he, when that happens and when it becomes sort of more about the sort of magical of uh, magic of her romance, whatever, with with him, um, I'm less interested in it. And I, w- I found myself disengaging from it. And also there's bits in the, lat- in the very la- latter part where she sings. <laughs> and I'm sorry, the singing I did not like <laughs> at all. Um, and the songs sort of like, toodle on for for way too long so I found that a little bit precious at times you didn't like the singing as in she was a bad singer no no she has a lovely voice and everything it's it's actually the songs herself I I don't think I was wholly convinced by by the 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 girl who she's very beautiful um who plays the the adult version of Juliette the daughter um I don't think I was really very engaged by her um and actually weirdly I, I know Jordan said nice things about the actress in Tchaikovsky's wife but I actually had slightly the same problem with that as well and I I'm not I don't even blame necessarily the actress and Tchaikovsky's wife because she isn't given much to, to play mm-hmm. but there are just some people who I find difficult to really invest in and and I found that here with with the the oldest actress who plays the daughter so I mean it's I'm still I'm still overall positive on it um but uh I wish it had actually just remained being a father-daughter story because I've actually found that very touching yeah I was curious to hear you talk about the acting because in Martin Eden I think I love that film, but I do think a lot of the reason I love that film is because of the performance of Luca Marinelli, but also Mar- the way Marcello works with like his visage and his you know presence. And there's a lot in retrospect for me. Martin Eden like sometimes doesn't hold up politically or narratively, but there's a lot that just that star presence and the way this the way the camera and the story kind of like swirl around this like central presence and his charm and his decadence it kind of knits everything together so i was just excited about marcello working with the hunk but <laughs> i guess the results are not the same every time, not every time. <laughs> well i will say that the father is played by the older the father in uh, elaine girodi's stain vertical which he has these, I mean, there's a joke in this movie about how he has these huge hands because he's a woodworker, but he's really great and has like this great like grizzled face. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Louis Garrel just kind of shows up and uh, is kind of like this, uh, like a disruptor, but also very, just like very Garrelish, where suave and like, yeah. he's cool. He's drinking, the women love him. Uh, he's a pilot. He's a daredevil. He's a daredevil and, there, and, he, and then he crashes a plane and there's like a romantic a moment after he crashes. And yeah, it's sort of like this fantastical film, much more of a, Sort of, that's what I was meant to say earlier, kind of like more in the vein of like Lost and Beautiful, a previous Marcello film, which is 
about the life of a cow. So it has this kind of like more magical quality, which, you know, Martin Eden was definitely like a very severe kind of like transposition of a novel. This seems to like kind of like lift the the uh, kind of more lyrical elements of this text, which I'm not familiar with, but it seems less beholden to like what its uh, themes are, but there's still like the kind of socialist aspects very subtly in this film that Marcello always kind of deals with. But I guess speaking of Luca Marinelli, he's in another film that we were going to talk about actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I got the segue down. Don't worry. I'm the new host. Sorry, David. Um, the movie we're talking about is called the eight Mount. Uh, yeah. The eight mountains, um, which uh, I know uh, Jessica very, really loved and I didn't, but maybe you can uh, set it up for me because I have not like actually uh, read the plot synopsis after I read the, or watched the movies. I'm like, now where is this movie set exactly? I think it's like Northern Italy, right? I think one of the things that surprised me about the film was that it's in a register of sort of Bildungsroman film that I, do, I normally don't really connect with. So And, and it is like a, a you know story of two uh, young Italian boys who are from very different backgrounds who bond and then just become lifelong friends. And it is the story of their friendship. It's a long film. It's like nearly two and a half hours long. Um, uh, it's uh, Despite the fact it is set in this beautiful um, uh, landscape, it's in Academy ratio. So it's like squared off, which seems counterintuitive. But then actually, I think it works really well. I think that the photography is really, really beautiful in a way that is actually slightly not just like leaning on widescreen vistas of the Alps, which is always going to be gorgeous, but like this is, it, it has a different texture to it as well. But yeah, um, so it's directed by uh, Felix van Groningen and his partner and collaborator, Charlotte van der Meers. And um, did, did Felix direct something with Timothy Chalamet? Yes, okay. yes, he did. I, I choose to pretend that he didn't direct that film. It's a film called Beautiful Boy, which I thought was very bad because prior to that and aside from that, for me, Felix van Groningen has a fairly unspotted record. I mean, up and down. But he did direct this incredible film called The Broken Circle Breakdown, which is a, an absolutely eviscerating film. Again, it was co written with Charlotte van der Meers and just a truly amazing film. He then did another one called Belgica, which I liked, though not as much. Um, and then So Beautiful Boy, which was, I think, his English language debut was a kind of a, it seemed like a misstep. So I was a little bit wary for many reasons going into this. Um, you see the length. I, I uh, It's based on an Italian bestseller, like a huge bestseller. Actually, I think it might even have been a bestseller then in translation in English um, called The Eight Mountains, Le Otto Montagne in Italian. And so this is an incredibly beloved story in Italy. It's also the fact that the these are Belgian directors who are working in Italy. And so they, they are, they're actually working in Italian. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons. I also, I haven't read the book, so I can't directly speak to that. But I think it's one of the reasons that a lot of the, the tropes of the book to film transfer don't haven't um they, they don't weigh this film down the way they often do I and mean, there's often over-reliance on voiceover and over-reliance on going back to the text and like pulling big chunks of narration out in order to get things to move along and there is voiceover narration here but it's actually quite sparing and it is has a kind of poetry but it's not the poetry of sort of flowery purple prose it's this quite sort of hard hard bitten little little chunks of wisdom that are just happen to be sort of very nicely phrased or whatever it is and I, I feel, felt like there was an analogy an analogy between that and the visual language of the film as well which is very it, because it although it's the dealing with the the relationship between the Luca Marinelli character and another character called um, Bruno who is played by Alessandro Borghi who's an, also a huge star in Italy the the other relationship is obviously each of them with the mountain it's the specific mountain that they are that the Luca Marinelli character as a child 
um, uh, goes to, his name is Pietro, uh, he goes to visit with his parents um, because his father is an avid mountaineer. So I'm an avid mountain climber when he's not running his factory in Turin. So he's the city boy who goes there as a child on vacation. And he meets, it's a very tiny village called Grana. And he meets the only child in the village who is Bruno, um, who then grows up to be to be uh, Alessandro Borghi. So it's their relationship, but it's the relationship of them to their to the environment in a very specific way that I don't think you see a lot. And I think it's also genuinely a male friendship. And I don't think that we see many films where male friendships are dealt with so sensitively, with so unembarrassed, unashamedly uh, sensitive uh, depiction of, of the friendship that can exist between men. So I really loved it. I was really surprised. I liked the music as well. I think a lot of people had a problem with the music, weirdly, but so the music is a... Is a um, Jordan is nodding. Yes, is nodding vigorously. The music is actually, um, they were, uh, I think, mostly um, existing songs by this uh, Swedish singer-songwriter called Daniel Norgren. And the songs just... That, that, that's the only sound, the only, the only scoring that there is. There isn't an orchestral score as well, which is also I like because it seems counterintuitive when you have these big mountainous landscapes. You think there should be violins, there should be symphonies, there should be orchestras. And there's not. There's just this um, these folk songs, these sort of perfectly little uh, formed folk songs that, that sound out at, at certain moments in it. And I, I really enjoyed the music as well. I've actually been listening to it separate from the film since. So, um, yeah, I, it just it really worked for me. It's just classic old fashioned um, sort of nourishing tale um, that really hit all all the right spots for me. I was very surprised and delighted. Well, I don't, I don't actually, yeah, no, I don't actually dislike the music per se, but it was, it repeats, uh, these songs repeat frequently throughout the film and they become these little interludes and it almost became like a little cloying or a little precious, but it's sort of hypnotizing in a way. Like I found this movie oddly compelling, even though it didn't fully, I don't think it all worked for me per se, but I was telling Jessica before, like I was just planning on watching a little bit of it and then probably taking off because it screened very late. But I watched the whole thing and it's a two and a half hour movie and like ended at one in the morning. And uh, yeah, so there were things I liked about it. I w was curious what you think of like, there's like a homoerotic subtext I thought to the movie, but it's clearly just about, uh, or you come to find out they have girlfriends and, this and that, but for the first like half of the movie, I was like, this is clearly a, uh, you know, underlying homosexual like tension between these, well, they're children and they become adults, but I'm not familiar with the text either. So either the filmmakers are not interested in exploring this at all, which is, I guess they weren't, but I don't know. It just seemed to me like that, that was something unexplored or could have been either more pronounced that this is not that, or it is because it seems like if it is ambiguous, it's not on purpose, I guess. I, to me, it wasn't as clear-cut as it maybe should have been. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. But. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it's funny because I I didn't pick up a huge amount of homosexual subtext between them. And I, ordinarily, I think I'm, I'm I think my gaydar is pretty well. <laughs> it's pretty well tuned sometimes for, for that thing. I, I One of the reasons I think, again, that I, I think it's unusual is that it is because for me it didn't have much of that. So it wasn't actually... It's unusual to see a, a relationship between heterosexual men depicted as being very deep and very loving and really life-changing and life-defining for both of them, but actually not really having a sexual element. So to me, it didn't really have that element at all. So, And I mean, there are things that you can point out that are 
you know, traditionally I would be sort of, I think I would be hyper uh, conscious of how sidelined the female characters are here. They are very peripheral. Even his mother, who I think believe from what I've read about the book, the, the mother is a much stronger presence in the book and she's there much more. So so like the the, the female characters who uh, play in this are, are really, you know, pushed out to the sides and that would normally really bother me. But again, I think there's something just so um, uh, invested in the relationship between the two guys that I didn't I didn't feel like it was you know a choice to to some sort of like sexist choice it actually just felt to me like no this is we, we are talking about these two men and we can actually find all the colors of love and a, a kind of romance I guess and a kind of tragedy and all of those things in this relationship and we don't necessarily need it for it to be sexualized in any way um, but yeah, you you saw you. I guess you just saw something there that I didn't. Sure, yeah, probably. Let's but no, yeah, <laughs> no. But I, the thing I just enjoyed from it, just from like a programming or curatorial sense, is like they're programming this. It's a very strange movie to have in like the competition it can. For some reason, when I was watching, it, I'm like, this is like a good, like it. Like I said, it didn't totally work for me. But when I sat there and watched the first images, I'm like, okay, this could be really interesting. It's you know, the frame, you know, the aspect ratio and all this stuff in that location is very like put to good use. And yeah, so I found it like tonally, like, I don't know, the tonal and formal elements almost didn't cohere, which I found disorienting in a good way. I don't know if that makes sense, but it was uh, something that I'm happy that I saw actually, even if, you know, I didn't totally on board with it but you know actually also we should talk about Luca Marinelli because that's kind of that was our great segue um but I think it's uh especially what you were saying before about Luca Marinelli and how much his performance carried Martin Eden for you and I think it's it's very true he's just truly amazing in it and one of the things I really love about this film is that he's so different in it the character that he plays is so different and I have this theory and my theory is so strong that I even wrote it into my review of this film but I really really think when I even when I read the the initial synopsis and maybe you can back me up here or not I know maybe I am crazy but when I read the initial synopsis and I knew it starred Alessandro Borghi and Luca Marinelli I assumed that Luca Marinelli would be playing Bruno who is the mountain the the sort of the very charismatic mountain guy who the sort of I guess the more unusual character that and then that Alessandro Borghi would be playing the quiet city boy who uh, then ends up becoming a sort of a traveler and a writer and things Um, and so and then when you watch the film it's the other way around so Luca Marinelli is actually playing the very the quieter role the more watchful role the sort of more I mean they're both very watchful people and they're both very taciturn so um it's not like there's one of them's really outgoing or anything but there's still there's there's a uh, a very very different quality that he brings to this that to the then the sort of slightly showy kind of like obvious charisma I mean I'm that sounding like it's a negative but it's not it was a fantastic performance in in Martin Eden but it was really kind of on the edge of things it was a hard performance it was often very unlikable whereas this one he is much softer he's much more uh, soulful I guess I, I suppose he's much more invested in, inside but my my theory um is that because even because my assumption, I, I don't know why that was my assumption that he was playing that. I think that he was originally meant to play. I think they originally were meant to play the opposite roles. And, um, and my piece of evidence for this is the two youngest actors who play those characters 
um, th- like the they're they are dead ringers for the their adult yeah, opposites. Yeah, so um, like it's the, the, there's a young dark boy. The, the Pietro is is a, a young sort of slight dark kid, quiet, thoughtful, and then the and Bruno is the sort of sturdier, lighter haired, blonder one. And yet they grow up into the opposites. And again, that should probably bother me, but for some reason it really didn't. I mean, the, the performances are have such a sort of a through line. There's actually three actors who play um, the the roles. The teenage versions are only in uh, like one one or two scenes, and so not so much. But the the child actors and then then Luca and uh, Alessandro, um, certainly if, I'm I'm convinced I'm convinced um, I'm sure the filmmakers will uh, will address this and oh, will, yeah. yes will tell me I'm wrong. But anyway, again, even even with that, even with that sort of oh I'm like slightly taken aback thing, uh, it still really worked for me, and mainly because of Luca Marinelli again, who I just think is wonderful. Well, thank you both for joining and giving us. You know, the rundown of the first couple days. I'm excited to now enter the fray myself. And I'll talk to you both soon about more movies. And if you're listening, keep tuning in because we'll have something coming every day. And uh, we'll have both of these people on in writing and in podcast form. And thank you both. Thanks. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center, 